So my visceral reaction was like a little bit of nausea. Am I am I a dog fooder? Yes, yes, I am an addict. Welcome to WorkCheck, an original podcast from Atlassian, makers of teamwork software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello. I'm your host, Christine De La Rosa. At Atlassian, a big part of my job is to understand how teams collaborate. And within that, I've seen leaders jump on the bandwagon of popular new practices. And it's made me wonder, are these really the best ways to move work forward? On this show, we take workplace practices and separate the hype from the helpful. Each episode, two Atlassians debate how the practice should be applied, if at all. In today's episode, we tackle the unfortunately named practice of dog fooding. Let's meet this week's debaters. We have Marshall Walker Lee on the anti-dog fooding side. I want to say for the record, I am pro-dog. I'm just anti-dog fooding. <laughs> and Shannon Winter, our dog food defender. I'm defending the practice, not necessarily the name. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I want to state for the record, I don't literally eat dog food. <laughs> we know. Although I did eat cat food a few times as a child, but that's a story for another podcast. Shannon, I'm going to need you to fill me in on that one off the record. (laughs) Moving on. If you're not familiar with this term, don't worry. Here's a little dog fooding 101. First of all, no, dog fooding does not involve eating dog food. It's actually a common workplace practice. It just means that employees use their own company's products in their day-to-day work as a part of user testing and product development. Think of it like a chef tasting a dish before it leaves their kitchen. That's how they can learn if it needs more salt or spice before it gets in front of the customer. The term is most common in big tech, but all kinds of industries use dog fooding. In fact, it's said that the word dog fooding was coined at Microsoft back in the 80s. An exec there named Paul Moritz sent an email to their testing manager with the subject, eating our own dog food. The email was about getting Microsoft employees to use the company's products at work, and the name stuck. Okay, we can all agree that it's a terrible name though, right? Definitely. Okay, if we're giving dog fooding a hard time because of the name, I feel it's my duty to tell you about some attempted rebrands. An executive at Microsoft actually suggested the term ice creaming. (laughs) And another big tech company pushed for the phrase drinking our own champagne, which I can absolutely get on board with. Okay, okay. I'm definitely pro ice cream, although I do prefer a nice dry Prosecco. (laughs) Uh, Let let me just point out, though, that none of those rebrands stuck. It's still dog fooding. Okay, okay. Save it for the debate. Which starts now. Now, debaters, the rules. You get three rounds to make your case. Now, I want a good, clean debate, no low blows, and keep each round snappy. Shannon, Marshall, tell me, should all companies use dog fooding as a practice? Round one. Shannon, You are arguing that every company should dog food. What have you prepared for us today? Okay, let's start with the big one. 
Dogfooding is just faster than a full-blown user testing process. There's a reason it's used by Microsoft, Google, Apple, YouTube. Mm -hmm. The big tech company list could go on and on. It helps teams quickly iron out kinks using resources they already have on hand, themselves. I'd like to introduce you to my first guest, Nick Muldoon. Can I say g'day, folks? Uh, g'day, folks. Nick is the co-CEO of Easy Agile, a company that makes software for software development teams. And dogfooding helps them understand their product from their customer's point of view and iterate fast. The cool thing about dogfooding is that you'll round off the rough edges. You're just trying to find the best and quickest feedback loop. I mean, that's ultimately what it comes down to. It's like, how do we get the product into the hands of someone and get their feedback as quickly as possible? So Nick's company designs tools that help companies do scaled agile transformations. In plain English, they help teams change the way they work on a big scale. In a large company, agile transformations could take a full quarter of planning, if not more. And that would be a whole lot of dog food. So to enable us to test and dog food the product more regularly, we actually use a five-week cycle. So we can go through those same activities that our customers are maybe doing once a quarter, just give us a bit of insight into how the customer's using the product and what they're doing. So dogfooding basically allows Nick to use his own team as a microcosm for their customer's experience. With fewer people and less time, they can still come away with insights about the way their products might work at scale and fix any problems before they reach that broader audience. Totally. That's dogfooding working as it should. Marshall, anything you disagree with there? Uh, yeah. Listen, if Nick claims that dogfooding works for easy agile, I'm not going to dispute him. But we're not here today to talk about what works for Easy Agile. We're here to talk about whether or not dogfooding is a good idea for all companies. Uh-huh. And here's my concern. What if you or your designers or your developers can't represent your users? What if you have different experiences or you come from a different background? Then this dogfooding process is inherently risky. It threatens to push your team towards delivering a product that works first and foremost for your team. All right, so my first guest is Akila Scharf, a consultant at Project Inkblot. They help companies design more equitable products and services. And she has seen a ton of companies struggle and even fail because they rely too heavily on dogfooding. At least in my experience, development happens in an echo chamber. So if we're looking at statistics... Most development and design groups are pretty homogenous. And so if you're designing for everyone, but your teams don't look like everyone or have the same lived experience as everyone, testing on yourself creates this cycle of validation that isn't truly effective or accurate if your ultimate goal is truly to design for everyone. It's bad for business if your product excludes a chunk of the population that might want to use your product. We've had clients that have completely missed out on great business opportunities, but also opportunities to serve humanity by focusing on their target market so myopically that they've missed out on folks who would be ideal customers for whatever it is that they're developing. This brings to mind all kinds of examples of design that didn't account for gender or race. True. For example, do y'all remember the viral video of the uh, the racist soap dispenser? What? No. 
Okay, if you missed it, a video was shared around Twitter. This was a couple of years back, and it showed an automated soap dispenser that would only dispense soap into white hands. Oh. What? When a black user waved their hand under the dispenser, nothing. Nada. It just didn't recognize that user's existence. Mm. Now, that's that's some truly terrible design. Terrible, yeah. And And that should remind us that our products are not born, right? They are made by people. And those people can be short-sighted and naive. Mm -hmm. And in the world of tech, historically, those teams have been pretty homogenous and those people have looked the same. Mm -hmm. Now, that points to a larger problem about diversity and equity in tech hiring. We don't have time to get into that. But what I'm saying is the practice of dog fooding, it assumes that the team creating the products and the customers that they're creating them for are alike. And that's not always true. Here's Akila again. It's time for us to be thinking outside of our echo chambers. And I always say, when you're designing or developing something, it's got to go beyond like the last 20 people you texted or emailed or DM'd on Instagram. That's not everybody. That's not representative of the public. What do you think of that, Christine? No, it's a valid point. While dog fooding might save you time, it can't replace an entire review process. Mm-hmm. That's cutting corners. Yep. So, this round goes to Marshall. Yes. Oh, man. All right. Let's switch the order up. Round two. Start us off, Marshall. Okay. So, last round, I talked about the dangers of dog fooding for the customer. But what about for the employees? You want your team to be proud of their products, right? But what if they eat their own dog food and it sucks? (laughs) All right. Are you all ready to meet my surprise guest? Eagerly awaiting. Bring it on. My name's Paul Slade. I'm the head of engineering at Atlassian. Oh, man. This one hits close to home. (laughs) Bold tactic. Dog fooding, as you know, Marshall, is embedded into the culture here. Mm -hmm. Good luck turning one of our own against it. No, 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 you're totally right. Atlassian uses dog fooding all the time. Uh, in fact, here's how Paul describes it. So we use our software to build our software, which is, which is nice and inception-ish. Now, you might think of that as a good thing, but dog fooding has caused some really big problems even here at Atlassian. And so we have uh, teams like legal and finance and talent all using our tool, all using Jira for their day-to-day job to keep the business moving. And when we impact their ability to get their work done, well, that's when things uh, get a little exciting on the dog fooding front and and we're told to cease and desist. We've had some examples where a business team has been busy creating all their issues and their project plans in JIRA like good Atlassian citizens, only to have those things deleted because the development team didn't necessarily understand there were any examples of them around in the in the universe uh, and didn't really think about any necessary data migration. So that can sometimes be the peril of too much bleeding edge dog fooding is your data can disappear. I think we can all relate to the nightmare of lost data. Oh, yeah. Oof. Just imagine, Christine, that you come into work tomorrow and you discover that you've lost hours, days of work. Uh, no, thank you. And now you have to start over again from scratch because of your own product. How would that make you feel about your dog food? Often with dog fooding, you can create a loss of trust in the product. So internally, 
you know, teams, they want to be proud of the products that their company is building and selling. And, and so they want to see a, a high quality product. But with dog fooding, you're exposing your employees to something that might be a little more work in progress. And that then can create bugs and unexpected behavior and you can lose a bit of trust there. As designers and developers and anybody else working on delivering these products, our job is to bring value to the customers. And we should use the best tools for the job, whether they're made by our company or made by somebody else. Wasted time means less value for our customers. And that seems like an unacceptable trade-off to me. Ugh, strong showing, Marshall. Shannon, can you counter that? Challenge accepted. So, in that case, we didn't have a great feedback loop set up for the dog fooders to let the product development teams know how they were using the product. It's really not enough to flag random problems. There should be feedback on exactly how the product is being used when you encounter those problems. And that's the beauty of dog fooding company-wide. You get a sense of how a product might be used by various teams. Sure, sure. The feedback loop is essential in getting accurate audience input. Mm -hmm. Totally. But I'd say my bigger issue with Marshall's argument is that dog fooding done well can actually build team morale. It allows employees to feel like they're part of a team creating something really great together. Just look at Apple. In 1980, the CEO of Apple at the time, Michael Scott. I'm sorry? No, not that Michael Scott. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> announced that the company was no longer going to use typewriters. They were going to put their money where their mouths were and use their own word processors. Here's the memo he wrote, according to Inc. Magazine. Effective immediately. No more typewriters are to be purchased, leased, etc., etc. Apple is an innovative company. We must believe and lead in all areas. If word processing is so neat, then let's all use it. We believe the typewriter is obsolete. Let's prove it inside before we try and convince our customers. So our friend Michael Scott wasn't actually using the word dog fooding, but he might as well be. Let's prove it inside before we try and convince our customers. Hmm. This idea is at the very core of dog fooding. You have to believe in your product to be able to convince others to believe in it too. Hmm. In this way, dog fooding allows teams to know their product inside and out. Sure, if people on the product development team use their own products, they'll be able to iterate faster and better. But if the marketing team also dog foods the product, they can market it better. The sales team can sell it better. Mm. The customer service team can understand and empathize with their customers better. I think you get the point. It's a win-win all around because dog fooding makes for more informed and empathetic employees. And fun fact, so does cat fooding. What? There's no cat fooding. Are we allowed to just invent our points? (laughs) No, no. You gotta give the cat some love as well. Cat fooding is sort of reverse dog fooding, where a group of employees will use a competitor's product for a period of time to really get to know what else is out there. Oh. Sounds pretty perfect to me. Am I right? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> okay, I'll stop. But really, you can't have a solid competitive strategy without this kind of competitor knowledge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With either practice, you're getting to know the user experience more deeply. And that's going to make for a team with more faith in and understanding of the product they're building. So I think this round comes down to the question, does dog fooding or cat fooding for that matter? Yeah. 
boost or hurt the workforce's faith in their products. While I hate losing files, Marshall, I feel more confident and honestly have more loyalty to the products I use every day. And if the dog fooding process is done carefully, it can build faith. So based on a sample size of one, me, hmm. I award this round to Shannon on the pro side. Woo-hoo! I got robbed. And that means we are tied up. Cat fooding. And just in time for our third and final round. <laughs> Shannon, go ahead. Awesome. And thanks for the win. So my last argument is simple. Dog fooding just works. I mentioned Apple earlier with that typewriter memo. Effective immediately. But the Apple team didn't stop there. They actually doubled down and created an intense dog fooding schedule. Every day, the engineers and designers would put a new prototype in front of a colleague who'd never seen it before. They'd collect their feedback, work all night to adjust the prototype, and then do it all over again the next day. Oof. Wow. It's a lot. Believe it or not, a lot of the results they got are still in use today like the system-wide menu bar at the top of the MacBook screens that I think you're all looking at right now. Ooh. We can give a big thanks to dog fooding for that navigation friend. Eloquence, Shannon. And a relatable reference. Over to you, Marshall. What is your final point? All right, so I'll concede that dog fooding works, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right tool for every company. If you need to whack a nail into a wall, a frying pan works, a shoe works, but a hammer would be a lot better. And dog fooding, it might have worked well for most tech teams in the 1980s. And Shannon, if you want to meet up next week and debate the merits of slap bracelets and parachute pants, I'm all in. See you there. But a lot has changed since the 1980s and the early days of Apple and Microsoft. Don Norman didn't even coin the phrase user experience until the mid-90s. And since then, our ideas about user-centered design have become a lot more sophisticated. Now there are tons of simple strategies to help us put real users at the center of our work, like A-B testing or multivariate testing. Mm -hmm. The Internet has made all of this relatively cheap and easy to do. I mean, sure, it's not as cheap as asking the designer at the desk next to yours if they like your new feature. Sure. But bringing real users in early and often, it's a worthwhile investment. And one more thing before we wrap up, I want to circle back to where we started, the name dog fooding. Now, you mentioned, Shannon, that people have tried to rebrand this practice, Mm -hmm. but those names, they didn't stick. Mm. We're still calling it dog fooding. And my hypothesis is that we keep returning to the term dog fooding because the practice that it describes is just like that name. It's a little bit icky. It it isn't entirely (laughs) nutritious. And when we do it, we know deep down inside that something is wrong. Rude. Way to bring it full circle, Marshall. And that is a wrap on round three. So, does dog fooding work for select companies, or is it a practice that should be adopted everywhere? You've both made excellent points, and you've led me to believe that dog fooding does work. (gasps) But if it can't be done effectively, it shouldn't be adopted by all. Yes. Which means... Yes. Oh. I am declaring Marshall the winner on the con side. Down with dog fooding. And cat fooding, too. Although I think you made that up, Shannon. (laughs) Dog fooding isn't a perfect practice for every company, but it does have its merits. So how should you apply it? One, 
Remember, dog fooding alone does not equal product testing. It's just one tool in the tool belt, not a replacement for thorough real user testing. Two, think carefully about which teams you're sharing your product with and at what stage. Make sure you have a clear feedback loop in place. As Paul Slade said, dogfooding too early can risk losing your team's faith in their product. And finally, three, dogfooding only works if your testers truly represent your customers. That means representation is key. And if your whole team shares the same lens, make sure they're not your only test audience. And that's it for our episode on dogfooding. Thank you so much, Shannon and Marshall, for your excellent arguments. Thank you. Till next time. For the transcript or summary points on this episode, visit worklife at atlassian.com slash blog. Until next time, I'm Christine De La Rosa, and this is WorkCheck, an original podcast from Atlassian. 